what's what we're recovering now DNA wise things that wouldn't would never be considered a DNA sample is now that they're getting DNA out of everything right um but another thing is the murder rate is way in spite of the fact that shootings are through the roof the homicide rate while it's going up almost as fast it's not quite going up as fast as it was back in the 90s and the reason for that is we had two concurrent wars going on overseas and the medicine that was learned on the battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan came home and they're working in the trauma rooms in the emergency room right so and not only that but the EMT's procedures they have those pressure pants that they inflate that'll stop an arterial bleed yeah. People who were who you looked at, you're like, not going to make it. Pretty much, if you're not shot in the head or directly in the heart, they get you to the hospital quick enough. You're not going to die. So the homicide rate is is things would have to get really bad for it to get back to those uh, those 1991 numbers. Right. Or oh, they have that thing, and I don't know what it's called, where they actually shoot gauze into the wound. Yeah. It just, yeah. It plugs it like a cork almost. It's you know what I you what, when I read about it uh what it reminded me of when I used foam insulation you make a little hole in the wall and put it in and spray it in yes and it fills up and expands right, it's right. The same same premise yeah I mean some of the technological things now used in homicide investigation obviously the biggest game changer uh, was cell phones and not yeah. just the video of the cell phones but like you mentioned before the tracking of cell towers mm. to tell us exactly where someone was at a specific time. Mm. And of course, video, video being everywhere in the yeah. damn city and everywhere, yeah. you know, and you know, other electronic uh, markers like uh, easy pass and the uh, pl plate readers. That can plate readers, us. red light cameras. Yeah. I mean, these technological things make homicide investigation a little bit easier. I mean, just imagine, you know, in the 1960s or 70s when none of this stuff existed. You had to really be a gumshoe. You had to buy yeah. those Tom McCanns and, and really uh, wear out a pair of shoes, right? Well, a uh, prime example, when I, when I was the homicide coordinator in the 8-3, I was blowing the dust off of old murders. And you'd pull them out and you could see the detectives did everything that they could, could do. And they had a suspect. And they had all their witnesses, but for whatever reason, the case never got prosecuted. Uh, they couldn't, and, and without the authorization to go arrest, you know, you bring the guy in to question him. If it's not on, if he's not under arrest, he's not giving it up. So you would have these cases that for the most part, I'd look at them like, yeah, that's a solve. And then I would go hunt the, uh, the crime scene uh, stuff the bloody clothes would be in a barrel uh, in Erie Basin that the property clerk still had. Right. The the unpleasant thing about that is now I got to go down there and knock the lid off of that barrel that's been closed for thirty five years. Oh my god. Yeah. You think that it, you think that an old DOA smells bad? Oh my you god. You wouldn't believe what those barrels smell. Like. I can't imagine. I can't yeah. even imagine how horrendous it was. But now you can tell from the crime scene photos, many of them were in black and white, that blood was collected and it was tested. But back then, the only thing they could test was blood type. 
right. And even if you get a hit on the blood type, it's still two thirds of the population that are that are uh, capable of doing this crime. Right. Well, what did it mean? It didn't mean that much. Well, you know what? It it would it would help bolster witness testimony saying that it's this guy, and then you couple that with the confession and the lineup hits, and you know you're good to go. But uh, in these old cases, I was actually getting clearances on it by doing the, the DNA match that wasn't available to the detectives in the early 70s and late 60s. Right. And one of the homicides uh, in uh, not the next Patty Durr book, but the one after that, that uh, my wife came up with the title, Damned If You Don't. Uh, but one of the homicides portrayed that Patty Durr is working on throughout this novel is a 40-year-old uh, murder case from Schaefer Street. And uh, she turns out to be Patty's aunt. And she was a wow. dirtbag herself. And uh, the reason that he found, and because I, I actually, when I was, when we were cleaning out the homicide closet, my partner, Joey Tallarine, says, oh, I got one for you. The victim's name was Frances O'Keefe. She spelled it with an extra F. It was maybe family of yours. So I go looking through it, and it's a, it's exactly that situation. There were witnesses that see him coming and going from her apartment. Uh, we have them leaving the bar together. Uh, there's a ton of evidence left at the scene. Uh, he had left his blood there because when he went to work uh, with her on the knife, there were different types of blood at the crime scene. There were cigarette butts collected in the ashtray, camel filterless, and L&M. Hers were the L&M because they had the lipstick on it. And obviously the camels were his. We got DNA off of the camels. We got DNA off of the blood, separate DNA. We had a DNA profile for the victim and a DNA profile for, uh, for the perpetrator. And I'm all excited because I want to go lock up a, a septuagenarian for murder. <laughs> Except when I go in and I look for him, he relocated to Florida and got killed in a car accident in Florida. Uh, so the case was closed. There you so go. That, well, I took an exceptional clearance that's on That's right. It. I was just going to say that. Was, <laughs> Which actually was my working title for the book, Exceptional, exceptional clearance. clearance. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, it's just like, you know, you talk about like with special victims where they get these, I think they call them cold hits, where they have the DNA from a rape case, it comes back to a guy and he's in prison. Mm -hmm. And they gotta go break it to him, guess what? Well, I mean, they don't, obviously, the skill of interrogating someone and saying, oh, were you ever in this building? Do you know this person? No, you don't do, okay. Guess what, your DNA was found in her, you don't know her, you were never in this building, so you must have raped her. And then they're like, oh my God, you know, the skill, <laughs> The skill they use in interrogation is uh, second to, you know, well, they're, they're great, I think, especially. Yeah, yeah. So they do a great job. And uh, I, can't, I, can't, I can't even say they're second to homicide. They're just as good. But that, that's a real skill going into a prison and letting a guy know who's getting out next year. Guess what? You're not getting out next yeah. year because yeah. we just found this case, you know, and of course, the way they do it, the interrogation is done very expertly, like a surgeon, you know, dissecting. One little cut at a time, you know. Well, the other uh, the other aspect of, of uh, those interrogations is they're they're all on the video. There, you, there is no place in a correctional facility that isn't video and audio taped anymore. Right. So you're going in doing your uh, you're creating a record. 
and it's nice because now when the DA says, "All right, well, we're going to do we're going to do a, a a subpoena to have him produce so we can we can get a confession," no, you already got your videotape confession. I am not dragging that piece of shit out of jail again until they send him on a bus down the court for his arraignment for murder. Write it up. Because the DA wants to play. They want to play. Yeah, the, too. yeah it's, they, you know, they, they play. I, we didn't get to play. You know? Yeah, they think they're badass investigators because they can sit at the table with me. Yes. And talk to him to get him to repeat what he already told me. Right. Exactly. Thank you for wasting our time. Yeah. And you have to now. You have to drive them back upstate, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In some instances. Yeah. So. Well, Mike, this has been a, an unbelievably eye-opening case. I think you did a. Uh, an unbelievable job. I mean, anytime you arrest someone for a triple murder, uh, and you know, what, having worked homicides in New York City, all the, the right things were done, you know, at the right time. And obviously, one of the most important things is that you visited the crime scene. How many guys, maybe in a, in a precinct that's not as busy as the A3, would neglect to do that? Because they, first of all, they didn't even consider it a crime scene. Man. Well, you know, when I first took notice of it, I didn't know it was a crime either. It was only when I stopped and I looked in and I was like, ooh. And now I'm looking at a building that's completely burned out. I'm like, there's only one fire escape and I don't know. Yeah. So at that point I go in and look and I can see the source of the fire and I can see there's no external uh, sources like electric or gas or, or anything of that nature. Right. That, this, that, that, that it had to be there. And that, that's when I knew that it was a crime. It wasn't until I got into the station house and, and had it verified by the desk officer that uh, people were hurt and seriously. But that's also, you know, uh, what we would call in the obnoxious boss world of homicide investigation of uh, investigation 101. Visit the damn crime scene, right? Even yeah, though yeah. I don't know it's a crime scene, but it turned out to be one. And yeah, well, it was actually my morbid curiosity yeah. that got it started. Yeah, but I don't think you could be a detective if you don't have morbid curiosity, or at least not a good one. Right, you got to be nosy, as they say, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want us to know what, what the hell happened. Ask the question no one else would ever ask, would ever have the courage to ask. That's right. That's you right. know, and sometimes, you know, if you have that kind of moral courage, you shock them. And they're like, oh, he knows. And the next thing you know, you have a confession on your hands. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so. uh, to be in, inquisitive minds want to know, as they say, right? The easiest, the easiest confession I ever got. I didn't need a confession because I had enough. It was a multiple witness case. It was a longstanding beef between the two, the two parties, the victim and the uh, perp. And this was uh, what was sometimes euphemistically called uh, a public service homicide. <laughs> so everybody involved deserved the bullets. Uh, but I go and I get the guy and I bring him in. He's like, what's this about? I'll tell you when we get in. I'll tell you when we get in. I'll tell you when we get in. And I'm not even coughing him. I'm bringing him in. You know, he surrenders to a pat down before I let him in the back of the car. But my partner and I bring him in. He comes walking in like he's a witness. And I sit him down in the truth room. And uh, I said, this is a formality. And we read the Miranda. I says, you know, anybody that comes into the precinct house, we got to do this first. He's like, okay, okay. He's, uh, he says, so what do you want to talk about? Like you can tell, he's nervous. I said, I want to talk about that thing that you did the other day over there. 
bang, it all came out. Wow. It was that easy. It's just like a flood. Like he was waiting to confess. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's well, the hardest thing in the world, right? In these types of homicides, when I first started investigating homicides in that kind of environment, uh, I would appeal to their uh, their humanity and their guilt only to realize they're sociopaths. They don't have guilt. Right. What they do have is pride. And they have the intellectual need to justify their own actions. And they want you to understand where they're coming from. So if you can get these psychopaths, really, yeah. to understand that I don't need you to say anything. This is my proof. And if you don't say anything, we don't know what was going through your mind. We're just going to assume that you're a ruthless fucking killer. Right. And now they want to get it on record and they want to justify themselves, which is great for me because almost none of them understand the laws of justification. Right. Uh, evidently sucking your teeth at someone, someone sucking their teeth at you deserves a bullet. <laughs> that kind of dis uh, homicide time. You know, Mike, when you talk about guilt, one of my favorite stories happened about two years ago. And the reason I know this is because the detective that was involved told me about it. A guy goes in to the 2-5 precinct and he says, listen, uh, I did a murder like 15 years ago. And whoever it was, it was a civilian. She goes, oh, where did it occur? And he goes and tells her the confines were in the 2-3. So, yes. She did exactly what you're, you're seeing she does. She sends him away. She goes, you're in the wrong precinct, right? Uh, so instead of like sending him upstairs to the detective, she sends him away. Uh, what does he do? He walks into the two, three precinct, does the same thing. They send him upstairs. Billy Dunn, great detective, who's been in the two, three his whole life. He pulls out the case, blows off the dust. This guy, sure enough, he did it. He knows every fact about it. He's now doing 25 to life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after he confessed, he took it to trial. He had second thoughts. Oh, what the hell did I do? You know? But I that, had... That woman that turned him away should be fired twice. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what are you, there's a reason why she's on the TS. <laughs> uh, when I was in anti-crime, uh, we, we had Sundays off, and... Uh, We get an RDO tour signed to the Dominican Festival behind George Washington High School. And it's a nice day. You're hanging out, you're talking to people, you're eating, you're drinking, non-alcoholic beverages, of course. Yes, of course. And <laughs> it's just a nice day. You're not expecting to be involved in anything. And we hear shots coming up from like 192nd Street and coming up from the direction of St. Nicholas Avenue. So myself, uh, I think it was Tommy McFarland and Patty Regan, we start walking up there slow. And this distinguished Dominican gentleman in, uh, he's wearing a suit. But you can see that he's distraught as he's walking down the block in like this wooden fashion. And then he sees us approaching him, and now he comes up with a 357. But he doesn't point it at us. Right. He's like, here, take this. I'm like, no, put it on the fucking ground. 
So he puts it on the ground and we grab him and it, we and and now I open the gun and there's six spent shells in there. Wow. And this guy does he looks like a businessman. He doesn't look like a killer. And I ask him, what happened? Where are you coming from? And he says he's crying and he says, the bitch. I love her too much. <laughs> I knew that was going to be yeah. the story. I wrote that in a shot to pieces. I knew that was going to be the story. But uh, so now we go up and like he tells us, she's in the beauty salon. And what it was is he was an older guy. He had married a young, young, beautiful Dominican woman. And he sends her to beauty school and opens up a beauty salon for her. So this guy was an entrepreneur. He had businesses all over St. Nicholas Avenue. Right. Unfortunately, as he gets older, he gets gets a little sick. Uh, he's off his game. He's not coming back anymore. He's got ED and things aren't right. Uh, the wife goes and hires a, a, a kid to basically sweep up the hair. And she starts banging him. <laughs> he finds out about it. And what he does is he says, listen, you know, uh, I know I'm not I'm not what I used to be, but I love you and and you love me and you shouldn't be doing this to me. It's disrespectful. I want you to break off the affair. I want to work on our marriage. So she agrees to do that. He happens to pop in to the shop that she supposedly she's going to be maintaining some of the equipment, and yeah. he pops in and they're having sex. Well, this guy's a businessman in Washington Heights. He'd be nuts if he didn't walk around on He actually was a licensed firearm holder. Right. Well, he pulls that license 357, and he kills them both. Wow. And it's in a, in a fit of uh, remorse. And, uh, I mean, obviously, it was an emotional act. When now he comes down the block, he might have actually been looking for police to surrender to. And we just happened to be coming up there. And uh, I, I remember when we brought it up to the squad, uh, Jerry Giorgio is like, you're working in detail. You're not supposed to be looking for collars. I'm like, Jerry, walked into me. Right. I was looking at, I was eat, looking to eat clams on the ham shell and drink a Heineken. Wow. I didn't ask anybody to kill anyone today. That's a great story. Yeah. But he said only you guys. So that should that could be in your book, a little side, little side story, you know. Well, I actually, if uh, it, in. Uh, and shot to pieces, backstory on Patty Dyer. He's the one having the uh, 17 year old having the affair with the married woman. Right. And the husband catches them. And he's, uh, first he shoots and kills her. And then he puts the gun up to Patty's head and actually burns the cylindrical hole. And then he has a change of, change of heart. He's not going to kill the kid. And he says, uh, and he says, the bitch, look at what she make me do. I love her too much. And then he kills himself in the book. Oh, wow. No, I read your book. I remember that scene. Yeah, yeah. Great scene. But that's where that came from. Mike, this has been uh, fantastic. The problem is, is that we could sit here for days and just tell war stories, you know? Yeah, you know, if there was no such thing as the internet, we'd be in a bar doing just that. That's right, exactly. So you have any last words, anything you want to plug, anything new before we No, just, uh, I would encourage everyone to, uh, Sign up for my newsletter. It's uh, michaelokeefeauthor.com. Uh, you'll get, I'm trying to put one out every two or three weeks, uh, basically give you an idea of uh, where I'm appearing, 
uh, because now things are starting to open up. I actually did a live appearance this week at a uh, Kiwanis uh, club in my old neighborhood. Good for you. Uh, and also, uh, I'll be giving you an, uh, an idea when my next book will be out. And That's I might good. even sneak some uh, some free biscuits in there. <laughs> some uh, You'll get to read before it's ever publi uh, published uh, snippets of the upcoming books. That's fantastic. I'm, so I'm once again, and, and, and if you want to buy my, uh, my books that are out, the four books that are out, I have a link to my Amazon page. You just click that. It'll bring you right to my author page on Amazon. What's the link? I have the books in a day. Well, oh, it's www.michaelokeefe.com? Yeah, if you go on the website and you scroll down and, and you look at the whole uh, website, you'll see a clickable link that'll take you right to my Amazon page. That's excellent. So, Mike, uh, this isn't the end. I'm probably going to have you on again at some point because uh, you're a wealth of uh, stories and wealth of information, articulate detective, and you're uh, you're not quitting. You're still going after it. And I like that. You know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would have survived COVID if I wasn't writing. You're like me in a way too. Like you, even even though you don't, you shouldn't have any pressure on you. You're stressed all the time just because that's who you are. <laughs> More so than when I was a detective. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm like that too. I'm thinking of the podcast. Oh, what, what can I do to do this? What can I do? You know, and I'm like, why am I stressing? You know? I, I don't have to worry about getting paid or anything, you know. Although you always want to make money, even though you have a pension, you always want to make money. Right? Oh, yeah. So It's capitalism, baby. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so anyway, this has been Real Crime Stories with Bill Cannon. Today, I interviewed... Retired first grade detective Michael O'Keefe, not just a detective, he's an author of coming up on four novels. And a poet. Four novels and a what? And I'm also a poet. And he's a poet. I, I, you know, I don't know, I don't know about that. You can't that. get your mind around that. But I, but I read his novels. <laughs> Folks, thank you so much for watching. And uh, again, you can get www.michaelokeefe.com to uh, get on his website. Thanks again. Uh, MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. MichaelO'KeefeAuthor.com. Yes, sir. All right, Mike. Great to have you on the show again. Thanks, Bill. It was, uh, it was a blast. Okay. Have a good one.